Welcome back to Compliments to the Chef. I'm your host, Nancy. And I'm Bits. And we have a great episode to talk to you about today. We are currently watching Top Chef Season 6, Episode 8, Las Vegas, baby! Woo! Um, And we have a fun episode today. But first, we have some leftovers to heat up. Very delicious leftovers. Um, Nancy, why don't you go ahead and kick it off? Because I think... I had a pretty spicy leftover from you last had a week. Hot one. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so last week we were talking about my namesake. Um, and my namesake is no one, it's just me. But I always like to joke about random Nancys in history who could be my namesake. Uh, I've joked Sister Nancy of reggae fame could be my namesake. I've joked (laughs) Nancy Pelosi of congressional fame could be my namesake. Um, But I think the funniest one to joke about is Nancy Reagan, the blowjob queen of Hollywood. Bits had not heard this story. <laughs> not. I haven't looked. I haven't peeked either. So this is first Which time. is so surprising to me because I feel like you and I exist in the same corners of the internet. <laughs> and I just feel like this is the type of thing that would have shown up in your corner. But I guess, you know, historical sex fetishes are really just my corner of the internet. But anyway, let's get started. The origin of the Nancy Reagan blowjob thing, um, this surfaced a while ago. Like, I remember hearing rumblings of this, like, early internet days. But. What? Yes. But it all came to a head, pun intended. (laughs) It all came to a head in 2021. When oh my god is she alive at this point? <laughs> no. Oh my god. <laughs> Wait, when will you look up when she died? Because okay, <laughs> I can't. Sure. I can't have another Nancy of Reagan course. leftover next time. <laughs> okay, so this all started in 2021 when some random user on Twitter tweeted a photo of Madonna at the age of 63 in lingerie, and she's wearing very revealing lingerie. It's like one of those bras that actually doesn't cover the breast or the areola Mm -hmm. it just covers it just like is essentially like a g-string but for your boobs yeah right um and it's madonna on a bed sort of odalesque in this really scanty uh lingerie and it's that photo and then it's juxtaposed next to a photo of nancy reagan with her family her kids their dogs and it's sort of like an older (laughs) photo and it says like this is a photo of madonna at 63 and this is a photo of nancy reagan at 63 like this is the america we should aspire to in reference to nancy reagan showing this wholesome family and like you know how perfect and idyllic they are and then um the comedian a comedian then saw this tweet and uh posted in response the comedian's name is zach heitzel and he tweeted in response an article detailing kitty kelly's biography of nancy reagan the excerpt from the biography claims that nancy reagan was a renowned was renowned in hollywood for performing oral sex before marrying ronald reagan oh my so God. essentially just saying like you can think that she's this perfect, idyllic right. American woman, but she's actually, you know, uh, a sex fiend just like the rest of us. But I'll go on. I'll read a little bit. So this article that he tweeted or quoted, this is what the article says. According to Kitty Kelly's biography, Nancy Reagan was renowned in Hollywood for performing oral sex. Just say yes, Nancy. In the days when she was Nancy Davis, eerily close to Nancy De Silva, I'll wow. mind you. Uh, in the days when she was Nancy Davis, was known to give the best blowjobs in town, not only in the evening in the off, but also in the offices. That was one of the reasons that she was very popular on the MGM lot. 
It must have made her very popular with Ronnie as well. Well. So then, of course, course, the internet went crazy with, like, Nancy Reagan giving the best dome in Hollywood. Okay. And it just, like, was this incredible week of memes about, like, she give me that Nancy Reagan type shit. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Anyway, I won't get deeper into this, uh, but all to say, that is the origin of the Nancy Reagan blowjob queen. Did you find when she died? Yes. I can add that she was awarded this honor posthumously. (laughs) Five years after she passed away. So so she died in 2016. Yes. Okay. Good to know. Well, so that's my leftover from last week. What do you have to Delicious. eat Delicious. Okay. In this similarly uh, explicit realm, um, we wanted to heat up some leftovers on the Mario Batali oh, Me yes. Too apology. Yes. Iconic. Um, so yeah, quick Google search to confirm this basically spun up like a ton of chatter from 2017 where um yeah long and short of it is two women came forward to report detailed uh, alleged sexual misconduct um a lot of it was like around groping inappropriate um touching and comments etc uh i'll read i'll read the apology email and then the 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 tweet that accompanied this (laughs) apology email quote As many of you know, this week there has been some news coverage about my past behavior. I have made many mistakes and I am so very sorry that I have disappointed my friends, my family, my fans, and my team. My behavior was wrong and there are no excuses. I take full responsibility. Sharing the joys of Italian food, tradition, and hospitality with all of you each week is an honor and a privilege. Without the support of all of you, my fans, I would never have a form in which to expound on this. I will work every day to regain your respect and trust. MB. P.S. <laughs> in case you're searching for a holiday-inspired breakfast, <laughs> these pizza dough cinnamon rolls are a fan favorite, and then it proceeds to include a massive image of a, what I guess is the cinnamon rolls, like not really even a good picture of them, and a massive button with a CTA, get the recipe. Oh my god. So this is all like couched in a tweet that just says, hey guys, it's 2017 and Mario Batali just apologized for sexual harassment and gave a recipe for pizza dough cinnamon rolls all in one email. (laughs) So yeah, that was a pretty, you know, obviously like, really shitty but uh it's amazing respect for the victims but also just absolute disrespect for the way in which what a clown there's here's the thing there's so much in that apology the apology on its own is not sufficient like it's it's, of all of the me too apologies it's a bit of a like heads up to my crew like you might see some stuff like there was a year in 2017 2018 being that year where we were getting a lot of these celebrity apologies and sort of I think much to the surprise of many of the public, it was like, is there no template for this? Like, has a PR firm right. not figured out the right thing to say? Because all of these seem wrong. And this one is one of the most wrong ones yeah. I've seen. He just keeps, like, referring to his fans. I honestly, It's, it's like, like this ego yeah. thing in the... 
I would love to know what Chad GPT would like spit out as far as like an apology for sexual misconduct. Wow. Not going to leftover it because I think that we need to have one episode without sexual misconduct yeah. as a leftover. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure last week was Boris Johnson. Suffice it to say that it was probably, it's probably a lot more successful than Mario Batali. Yes. And suffice it to say there's a lot of rampant misogyny and harassment in the food industry. We do not condone it. Um, we scoff in the faces of the perpetrators yeah. and we'll absolutely roast you for your apologies yes, and so stand in solidarity with the victims and that's all we have to say about that um on to kind of lighter matters here a few just like quick housekeeping clarifications um we uh, last episode incorrectly said that this was the first pair challenge we'd seen every season or this season not true we had actually had a pair challenge back in episode four um, when we were ch- uh, pairing the French proteins and sauces. Yes, yes, yes. Um, uh, the pronunciation of Govind Armstrong, one of the judges from the episode 7, just clarifying that pronunciation there. Uh, and then lastly, we really wanted to figure out the case of the toilet halibut, um, and that was specifically like what where happened were they to... Cooking? Where was the footage, the lost tapes of Brian and Lorene's uh, trout, uh, excuse me, halibut, I'm still convinced that it was like they had to make it in the bathroom, like on the toilet. And the case has gone cold right now. If you have any leads, please hit us up. Please hit up the hotline we've set up. 1-800-TOILET-HALIBUT. Toilet-HALIBUT. Find my, find the footage. Um, (laughs) Hashtag find the footage. Hashtag bring our footage home. Um, Okay, well anyways, I think we have covered all of the leftovers for this week. I think we're nice and full, so let's begin. All right, let's dive in. Um, quick fire reactions, Nancy, to this episode. We got another big group challenge. Um, where's your head at on this one? So this episode was fun. I am excited to see our first product placement challenge, which is something yes. that I think really comes more into play in later seasons. But uh, it's just fun to see them fo- be forced to use an ingredient that they would never have to use were it not for furnished by. Uh, The famous words of the Top Chef cinematic universe. Um, I also, there was, my reaction to this episode was similar to um, a few episodes ago. Which one was it? Was it the one with Michelle Bernstein? Yeah, like the deconstruction one. There was just a lot of consistency. The um, guest judge for the quick fire was also the guest judge for the elimination Mm -hmm. challenge. The quick fire uh, prompt and the dishes that it elicited were not too far from the dishes that we got in the elimination challenge. So it was kind of just a cook your heart out kind of episode, which, you know, we see these to keep the pacing. Yeah, totally. Um, Yeah, my notes here on this one were, it was a little bit like... I, th- I really liked the pairing aspect. I'm kind of surprised that it doesn't feature more in this show, to be honest. Um, but I would say that it was a little bit of an unexciting elimination challenge only because it was like the same mate. Like the same, you know, it was all Protein. pork. Um, and it, but it just, the, all the plates were like very identical. So like you couldn't really... Nothing looked more or less appetizing. I mean, there were certainly some that looked way less appetizing, but 
Um, I also wish they would have maybe given us, and I, I've done a little bit of research here, so I'll, I'll get into that in a bit, but I wish during the episode they would have shared a little bit about like the wines that they were pairing and like what the sort of like aroma and tasting notes were, um, how the sort of like uh, Pinot Noir sort of like expresses itself in different areas of the world. So we had some French, we had some New Zealand, New World uh, in California and Oregon. So yeah, that was my overall reaction. But again, I always love a challenge where they have to cook at scale. I just think it like adds a very cool constraint. Yes, I agree. Though I have a note about this later in my notes, but since you brought it up now, why not? Um, this type of challenge where each has their own station and they're cooking for a large public where they have to prepare like 300 plates of the same dish. Yeah. I feel like in later seasons we get these types of challenges more frequently within the season mm-hmm. where an individual needs to cook small bites for some sort of like charity event or invite the local community group, that type of format. In later seasons, we see that happen a few times. Whereas in this season, I think this is really, you could kind of argue that the military challenge in episode three was the same thing, but it wasn't really because they were all working together. Right. Whereas this, their dishes stand alone. They are all competing against each other and they are responsible for replicating a singular dish like 300 times. Right. Yeah. So yeah, that's all I really have to say about that. Why don't we just jump into a more formal analysis of the episode? So, um... I wanted to start, we had a bit of an intro here. Um, We have Michael Valtaggio talking about how it didn't feel good to be on the bottom the previous episode. Yeah. And he's, he's out for redemption. Oh yeah. And no one does redemption like Michael Valtaggio. So it's fun to see that energy sort of coursing through his veins. Um, What did you think of Eli's phone call with his mother? Oh God. I actually wrote a quote, honestly, this is the most redeeming thing about him. Oh, my notes say this explains so much about him. <laughs> I, I think like I would have a different stance on this like if it was like five years ago and I didn't have multiple friends who at some point in their 20s and 30s live with their parents. Like I think I would be like laying in more, but like... Present company included. included. Shout out to the year 2020 and my parents. Shout out to Scarsdale. Um, <laughs> anyway, so, but yeah, I mean, it was like silly. I, I think like if I put on my like 2008 or 2009 like goggles I'm like haha like good like loser loser living in his mom's basement um but yeah it it was funny and it was endearing uh and then the last thing is Robin does her Pilates I know that they were trying to use this to make her seem sort of like kooky and holistic but like I do Pilates she's like kind of the only one that seems normal now yeah like if all, all this tension is just like doing everything to make her look extremely adjusted and everybody else like very nasty by comparison yes that is such a good point we'll get to that really the robin of it all really heats up this episode but i think that we need to save that for when let's save it let's let's actually talk about the quick fire so you kind of alluded to it we had a sponsored quick fire challenge um so guest judge charlie palmer um pioneer for american cooking we'll get into a little bit on who he is but um, quick fire overall, the challenge this episode was to pair a dish with Alexia's crunchy snacks, <laughs> which not sure if that exists anymore. The chefs had six different flavors to work with. They're, they're snacks made with like real veggies. Um, the thing that I like laughed at and I would love to put to you is like Ash's comment about, oh, like 
yeah, we've been like munching on these in the house for weeks. Like I would be, there's certain snacks, you know, when you like go on vacation, you like buy in bulk and you're just like, I'm going to eat it. And I never want to see that snack again. Like I had to imagine that like some people saw those and were just like, you got to be kidding me. Like this is all I've been eating. Like, well, yeah, because I've clocked the bag. Like I've seen it in that stew room that they sit in when they're waiting for judges table. Like I fully believe that their house is stocked with these snacks (laughs) and that they have been eating them. Cause from what I gather, and I feel like they talk about this on the show all the time in every season, like chefs eat the grossest food. Like they are cooking fine dining. Like you can be at the nicest restaurant and they're ordering like a pie right? and they're just shoving pizza when they can. So I am not surprised. I fully believe that they have been eating these trash snacks the whole season because it's all that's around the house. Um, so they're definitely very familiar with the flavors. <laughs> yeah. It is not a snack that looks in any way appealing to me. They're all like fried foods made dry like there was a waffle fry like those veggie sticks yes yes like onion rings like these are all foods that we actually don't need to turn into a chip no and I also was like would love to understand like why Charlie Palmer of all people was there for this I I know that like later on the elimination challenge is sort of like that event is his baby but like yeah so okay talk to us a little bit about Charlie Palmer we know that the brothers Voltaji both worked uh, for him at one point, but yeah, would love yeah. to hear more. Um, yeah, and I, I, all I will say is like in this episode, all I wanted was more detail about when the brothers Voltage I worked for him. Like there seems to be yes. some really deep seated like resentments there, perhaps some trauma, um, perhaps a little whiplash. Miles Teller, John C. Riley relationship yes, yes, going that's, on. <laughs> yes, dude, yes, yes, that came through in a big way. Weird. Yeah, but uh, we'll never know. <laughs> Uh, but okay, so Charlie Palmer, who is he? As everyone on the show said, uh, he is a pioneer of American cooking. And what does that mean? So he graduated from um, the Culinary Institute of America, and his first executive chef role was at the River Cafe in Dumbo. Which, mm. for those listening to the pod who don't live in New York City, or for those who are living in New York City and don't know, the River Cafe is a very famous restaurant in New York City. It's right at Brooklyn Bridge Park. It sits right under, um, I believe, the Manhattan Bridge, because Dumbo stands for Down Under the Manhattan Bridge Overpass, and that's where the River Cafe is. And not to make it about me, but I have a very special memory with the River Cafe, (laughs) which is um, I was very lucky growing up to have traveled far and wide. And when I was 16, well, actually, when I was 15, I went for the summer on a backpacking trip in Burma and Laos. And then my parents were very jealous of this backpacking trip. So two years later, my whole family went to Burma and Laos because my parents really wanted to go. So by the age of 18, I had been to Burma. But on that trip, I realized I had never been to Brooklyn, despite growing up in New York City. Oh, my God. (laughs) And so I made that comment. And it clearly stuck with my parents because when I graduated from high school, my parents took me to the River Cafe as, like, my special graduation lunch. That's actually insane. You never went to Brooklyn? I had never been to Brooklyn before the age of 18. Like, not... I mean, do you drove through it, at least? No. What? When I was growing up, like, Brooklyn was not what it is today, and I didn't have any family that lived there. Right. I had literally no reason to go. That's (laughs) bonkers. Anyway, okay, back to Charlie Palmer. So that's just a fun little story. I have a very soft spot in my heart for Charlie, or for the River Cafe. So I just wanted to add that. But anyway, so um, 
after working at the River Cafe, he opened his restaurant Oriole. Uh, in 1988 in New York City, and it very quickly rose to acclaim. He then opened up uh, Oriole in Las Vegas in 1999, so 11 years later. The same year, he opened Charlie Palmer Steakhouse at the Four Seasons Hotel, which is another incredibly storied New York City restaurant. And all of this essentially is to say, like, he is the steak and potatoes king of the United States. Mm, like, okay. he makes... It's very, like, American contemporary steakhouse, and it's very famous. It's um, associated with quality and excellence. Um, not necessarily the most innovative food, but certainly bringing American food into the late 20th, early 21st century. I see. So that's the role that he plays. Um, he's also opened up a few hotels now that are centered around his restaurant. So he's gotten into the hospitality game in a much bigger way. Okay. Um, a few more things on Charlie Palmer, specifically around his awards. It should come as no surprise that he was awarded the James Beard Award for Best Chef in America in 1997, which is the year, a few years before he opened his restaurant in Vegas. So clearly his name is on the map. Everyone knows who he is. In 2011, this one was really interesting. In 2011, he was inducted into the Gaming Hall of Fame. Like hunting gaming? or like... No, no, no. Gaming like entertainment and gaming. What? How? Yeah. The, I looked up the Wikipedia. It says, like, it's for entertainment and hospitality, so maybe it's for his, like, hotelier stuff. Oh. Right. But that's a random wow. accolade. But, okay, I want you to guess how many Michelin stars he's won. Um, 12. 13. Wow! I'm not going to lie. I'm actually extremely good at guessing numbers. <laughs> what an incredible skill. I'm terrible at no, it. No, I'm really good at it. Um, so tell me how you got that guess. Uh, honestly, like, I just figured, I knew it was in, probably in the double digits because of the way that you framed it. And then I was like, there's no way he has it on our boy, Joel, Joel Rubichon, 32. Yeah, wow. Like, triplet. Anyway, so there's a lot that goes into it. It's a little bit of a proprietary Technology, process. Yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway, okay, so that's my deep dive on Charlie Palmer, who is essentially the host of this episode. But let's get to the food. the food. Let's talk about these pairings with these snackaroos. And, to, and again, we're talking quick fire. Um, so thing that I'll say, which like, thank you for that deep dive on him, because I think it really makes obvious like what that tension is between the brothers Voltage I here, because like Brian very much draws from that way of cooking. It's very classic, but does it very well. Very meat and potatoes kind of guy. And then you have Mike, who's like, the rebel. The the rogue. Um, so, yeah. So, kind of starting with those guys. So, Brian uh, goes for the um, onions. Uh, snack. Snack. What do you call it? <laughs> the, the Alexia onions. And he goes in the direction of steak and onions. Palmer in a very sort of... Um, I don't know how... Yeah, like, I think you sort of nailed their relationship dynamic. Would you say it was like... Um, the, oh, the whiplash? Yeah, it was like very whiplash. It was like, did you go with that because it was a it's safe, safe choice? choice? And you could see him kind of be like... Meh. Yeah, um, yeah, he really became like a little kid in that moment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, other dishes... But I mean, it was clearly good. Um, but other dishes that were interesting to me. So um, Michael Voltaggio makes a tuna tartare that looks delicious. Uh, I think that was actually a really smart move with yeah. the snacks. A note to our listeners, we are not counting tartars in the ceviche counter. No. Nope. So we are clear. There's ceviche. not enough space, honestly. <laughs> yeah, because it's like. blowing up. Um, but okay, so we actually don't have any ceviches the whole episode. 
Which is good because raw pork. Uh-uh. Uh-uh. Um, but also let's talk about uh, Robin's Parfait. Okay. Um, I was actually intrigued by this. Like, I would eat that. I don't know why. I just, I think, like, I, I kind of love, like, the a pudding, like, a tech that texture. Um, maybe I only got, like, a didn't get a big enough look at it, but wh- where was your head at with that? Because you seem... I was not interested. Opposite. Well, first she described it as a panna cotta. Right. And then it was very clearly not a panna cotta. It was a parfait. It was a parfait. Yeah. So then she was like, eh, it's kind of a parfait. She does this a lot with her dishes. She did this with the curry chickpeas. Yeah. Um, she, like, presents something with a lot of confidence, and then the second she gets called on it, she it's not really defensive. She just deflates a bit. Yeah. Um, Honestly, like, I kind of... It, it kind of feels like the way that a home chef would approach something where it's just like, she probably, I mean, not in the last few challenges where she's sort of been on the bottom, but like clearly she has some natural talent for merging good flavors and maybe just doesn't have the like trained vocabulary on how to kind of like code and describe them. Yes. I would think that, I think that's a very good way of putting it. Um, so who else do we have here? So we have Ash making a chilled cucumber soup. Okay, can I interject on the Ash piece? Because I had here, we need to give him an honorable mention on chef most likely to get like halfway through the season and then realize like they need to start cooking their food. Yes, um, that plays in big time in the elimination Big challenge. time here, big time with Je- uh, Ash. Yeah, Ash woke up this morning and said... He has a new lease on life, and it's my time to shine. Yes, and he's going to stop looking at what the other chefs are doing, which I found ironic to state in this challenge because he was, had he looked left or right, he was the only chef that just kept the chip intact. Like, it was like a chip and dip situation, and it was, I saw that, I was like, oh, Palmer's not going to like that. Yeah, Ash had a pretty bad episode, uh, which we will continue to talk about, but Okay, I'm just going to run down the dishes that got made so that our listeners are tracking. Eli made a potato and clam salad with cold fennel. Um, Kevin made a warm bean confit tomato salad, which I think he referred, he was trying to liken it to green bean casserole. Yeah, love that. Which was actually fun. On Thanksgiving, I do love the green bean casserole with the onions. You know. Um, Then we have Brian, steak and potatoes. Good old steak and potato, Brian. We have Robin with her parfait. Mike Isabella with chilaquiles. Mike with tuna tartare. Ash chilled cucumber soup. Laureen swordfish with spinach. And then Jen with a very unfortunate overcooked pork chop. Yeah. You could tell that hurt her to like put in front of her. Yes. But uh, him. uh, So on the top we have Eli, Brian, and Kevin um, with Eli taking home the win. That did wonders for his ego. ego. For the rest of the episode. Um, so, yeah, all in all, like, I, I it was a cool quick fire. It like, was fine. The, the sponsored ones are always, like, a little bit shoehorned, but, um. Sometimes they're really funny, though, and sometimes, yeah. like, <laughs> it really is challenging <laughs> for the chefs. This one was, while it wasn't ideal for anyone, I don't think it was that challenging to incorporate no. a chip. A food item into your food. Right, right. So, um, but then we turn to the elimination challenge, with st- which starts with our favorite, a knife draw. Yay! Okay, so why don't you tell us a little about the challenge? Yes. So, uh, right after quick fire, chefs are asked to do a knife draw. So, each of the nine chefs uh, pulls. We have Jen drawing uh, wild. At this moment, we're not quite sure what the challenge is. And then the second that Mike Voltaggio draws... Uh, cheeks 
pretty quickly the chefs clock that, okay, this is going to be a pork challenge. And then each chef testant proceeds to draw a knife that um, aligns with like a different part of the pig. Jen, because of her wild draw, gets to pick any part of the pig. She decides to go for pork belly, which is also what Eli decides to pick. Um, we'll get into more detail on like the exact dishes, but yeah, overall, everybody's getting a different part of that pig. Um, and then this is a, a sort of like food event challenge. So this is an event that uh, Palmer is putting on called Pig and Pinot. So the challenge here is that they have to take that uh, cut of pig and pair it with a Pinot. Um, this is going to be a food and wine magazine event. Um, and yeah, I think the chefs have to cook 150 tasting portions. Wow. So not small potatoes. I thought cooking chili for 40 people was a lot. I Mm-mm. could never do what these people do. Um, but yeah, I think the pairing was a really nice added bonus. And it, it didn't really add any constraints on the challenge. It just, I think, was a nice prompt for yeah. the chefs. It was a good really guardrail to like critique what would otherwise be like kind of difficult. Like everybody's just doing pork. pork I don't know. Yes. Uh, I like that a lot. But so then um, the chefs go from the Top Chef Kitchen to um, Charlie Palmer's aforementioned Oriole, Las yes. Vegas. And we see this wild wine <laughs> cave with wine angels who are attached to harnesses. And they're going, they're flying it's around crazy, this dude. wine cellar. It's literally like, like it's beautiful. expensive shop girls. Yeah. <laughs> It's like, that's the first thought that entered my mind. I would, would you want to go in there? Hell yeah. Yeah, me too. Are you kidding me? Yeah, of course. And get hoisted around? (laughs) Now, what I was wondering is, do you think the angels are the same, are the waiters? Or do you think that they are just (laughs) in that thing all night? They're all day. They're essentially like this, the vending machine, like going to grab the item. Can I come out now? (laughs) I have to hope. I mean, honestly, I don't know what I hope because it probably takes a minute to like get your harness on. So... I actually think that it's probably that they stay in there and like they're different. It has to be, but I have so many questions about the organization of that cellar. Like (laughs) are the more expensive bottles at the top or do you think the more expensive bottles are at the bottom because like it, it can go a few different ways. The reason why they would be at the top is like to reward the people yeah. who order them. You get to see this like crazy thing. But not everyone's going in there ordering the most expensive bottle. In right. fact, people are probably ordering the mid to cheaper ones because right. it's Vegas and everything already has a huge markup. So maybe like in order to get the full effect as frequently as possible, they put the cheaper bottles at the top. Well, I have no idea. And there's also, you have to think about like, uh, it's like the grocery store. Like you put the like stuff you want to sell at eye level. Exactly. So it's like, you probably want to have the nicer bottles like in view of the restaurant. Um, I bet they kind of go up and down and like, yeah, just, just put fun. on a little show <laughs> and then they like grab it at the top. Okay. And then my last question is, do you think that they get tips? Um, like, I bet think- it goes from like a pool. I don't think like someone's slipping them like a 20, like as like, they go get the highest from the depths. <laughs> I mean, yeah, wow, that is absolutely crazy. So if you didn't see this episode, please just Google and, like, watch a video of this, like, The Oriole Wine Cellar. Yeah, it's literally just a bunch of women just, like, attached to, like, pulley systems that are just... Going up and down. Like, spelunking on a wine cave, yeah. They're literally just going up and down what looks like a three-story wine cave. Yeah. It's crazy. I've never seen anything like it. But anyway, okay, so the chefs get to pick... There's a lineup of wines, yep. one for each chef, 
and they get to try all of them and then they get to go in order. I was wondering why Brian got to pick first, but that's honestly moot point. Yeah. Um, but they all get to pick a wine that they are going to pair their cut of meat with. And for those of you who don't know, Bits is a bit of an amateur sommelier. <laughs> and so I'm hoping that she's prepared some information on the wines. Well, I do declare. Um, yes, I uh, was certified level two WSET. Haven't put this to work in many years since I worked at a wine bar in New Orleans. But um, I did a little bit of digging because, like I said earlier, I wish they would have given us a little bit more about like why certain wines were good picks. So... Um, overall, like Nancy said, we had nine wines, um, from four different sort of known regions for Pinot Noir. So we have New Zealand, Oregon, France, and California. Um, New Zealand and Oregon had only one wine apiece. So, uh, New Zealand is like, when you think about like how Pinot Noir like expresses itself in these different regions. New Zealand is going to have much more of like a red fruit, fresh red fruit forward. It's going to be cherry, raspberry, plum. Um, Mike is the one that draws the wine from New Zealand for this challenge from Marlborough, which is actually more typically known for Sauvignon Blancs. Um, then we have, uh, we'll kind of go non-US. So then if we think about um, France... Actually, I'll save France. Let's go to Oregon. Um, Oregon, kind of similar to New Zealand. It's going to have like black cherry, raspberry, um, a little bit more like black peppery than like the fresher New Zealand. Uh, and then California, just below Oregon, you have Pinot Noirs coming from Santa Barbara, Napa, uh, Willa oh, excuse me, not Willamette. That's going to be Oregon. Um these are going to be like the higher alcohol Pinot Noirs, so they're going to be like fleshier, darker. The flavor is going to be like more rich and concentrated. Um, we had Brian, Ash, Eli, and Mike V all choose California Pinots. Um, Eli famously went for our first Turlato of the season. I think Turlato furnishes another a later season yeah, of Top Turlato Chef. Yeah, Turlato loves to furnish Top Chef, and honestly, like I. Really hope that Turlato has a moment just like Josh Wines did because I think it's like equally just like a funny bit. Is it the same caliber of wine as Josh? Um, yeah, I mean, I looked up at, at least the bottle. So one note on like the price range of these bottles, they were like kind of all over the place. Like we had some that were like 40 bucks and then some like that got up into the hundreds. Um, it depends on like the vintage, but like... I don't know. Estimating most of these bottles were probably like eighty to a hundred dollars. Wait, quickly, can you finish out France? Yes, and let's end with France. So France, my personal favorite area for Pinot Noirs. Um, Pinot Noirs in France come from the Burgundy region. Um, we had Jen, Laureen, and Robin all pick uh, French Pinot Noirs. So these wines are going to be much more earthy and like, like almost like foresty. They're going to have more complex fruit flavors. They're going to be just like the funkier, the funkiest really Pinot Noir. Um, and then, yeah, lastly on the Oregon note, Willamette Valley is like where most of those uh, Pinot Noirs come from. That's going to be again, like black cherry, raspberry, um, a little bit leathery. Maybe I already talked about Oregon. I can't remember. Well, thank you for the lesson. Cause as someone who does not drink and is allergic to red wine, uh, that was very fascinating. Thank You're you. so welcome. Um, yeah, and I think, like, you could tell, we'll get in uh, as we move into, like, the food. Like, you can kind of tell, like, who really knew the sort of, like, quote, terroir, like, 
who knew what the sort of like what that bottle was tasting like because they cooked with it before they've been to that vineyard others just were like oh it was like french so i like did it like riette like so yeah okay well that's a great segue into the food so um we have a lot of different dishes but honestly there there wasn't really a lot of variety in preparation i Mm -hmm. felt like in this episode it was a lot of just Protein and vegetable. Protein and protein vegetable sauce. Protein vegetable sauce. Can I say a quick thing on also like before we get into the food with what is the deal with these outdoor challenges and why aren't they allowed to ever wear sunglasses? Like I feel like they're always <laughs> sweating and always like squinting at the sun. Maybe it's for the cameras. They don't want to see the reflection. Oh yeah, that's so true. That would yeah, be my that's guess. That's 100% it, yeah. But um, Tom Colicchio wore a very, like, Neo-esque pair of sunglasses on the Bachelor <laughs> Bachelorette Challenge, episode two, that I actually regret not bringing up then, but we're already, like, 45 minutes into this episode, so, like, we gotta keep this moving. But um, maybe judges are allowed to wear sunglasses, and that's really just preferential treatment. Who knows? Who knows? But, okay, so we have um, some dishes uh, that look delicious, some dishes that maybe I wouldn't eat. <laughs> Um, but I think we should now talk about Ash a little bit. So as we said, Ash woke up and said, it's time for me to do my own food. And so day one, he's saying that he has this great idea for his dish and Tom Colicchio comes and he does his walkthrough of the kitchen and Ash is really fired up about his dish. He's like, finally, I had this epiphany and it's time for me to show you what I can do. And so Tom's like, okay, he like. I'll take your word for it. Famous last words. Famous last words on Ash. We see then between day one and day two of the challenge, clearly Ash has gone home and spoken to Mike Isabella, who told him to uh, turn his dish into a chilled pork tenderloin dish. And Ash said, uh, I think I wrote it down, but pretty much Ash was just saying, oh, So Ash said, I've been too influenced by other people. It's my time to do my food. And then he completely changes his dish because someone told him to. (laughs) And not only is it just someone, it's Mike I, who is the last person I would trust. Like earlier in the season, you see the Pickle Brothers, Kevin and Eli, talking to Ron about paella. And unfortunately, Ron did go home, but I don't think it was because of Kevin and Eli. I think it was because he didn't understand the challenge. I think... Kevin and Eli were giving genuine, productive help. Yeah. Whether or not Ron was the person to receive that advice remains to be seen. But to me, Mike Isabella is the person who would intentionally give you bad advice just to fuck with you. Yeah. And I think that's what he did. Like, Ash is so impressionable. We saw it with the whole Picasso thing in the last episode. He well, clearly I don't really has, think about that. He clearly has very severe imposter syndrome, and for that I feel bad. But he's like, oh, there are all these incredible chefs, and they're telling me to do this thing. That's, of course, it's a better idea than I could come up with. And his crisis of confidence really leads to his demise in this yeah, episode. absolutely does. Um, we hear from the judges, let's spend some time with, like, kind of the unsuccessful dishes while we're down here, because I'm mm-hmm. going to just, like, launch into the sort of, like, judges' notes on Ash's uh, chilled tendy. Um, we got like a quote, pork is clammy. Like, yo, that's not tasty. That is the last thing you want to hear. Um, yeah, oversalted and yeah, the big rich wine that he chose needed something a bit bigger was Palmer's note. Also on the bottom with an equally devastating review is Lorene's 
Riet. I've never had a Riet, but it became very clear later in the episode that neither had she because she had improperly <laughs> prepared it. But the um, feedback we got from Dana Cowan, who I believe is the editor-in-chief of Food and Wine magazine, mm-hmm. yep, um, was, I've never had a Riet before, but I'm just going to say it, cat food. That is not what you want to hear. Oh yeah. my god, cat food. Ugh. I I do love how she kind of like gave herself that opening though, because sometimes with food like that, like some people like that. Like <laughs> I would I would check it too. You know, particularly with French food, like a lot of it's kind of gross. Yeah. <laughs> no offense. They to love the to like roll it and like mince. They and love just to use like it. fats and things yeah. that are not familiar to our American palates. Yeah. Our delicate constitution. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have that. Then we have um, also Robin, once again, just had a really thin piece of meat uh, that the judges were confused why she yeah. provided such a thin piece of meat. But I want to pause here and talk about the Robin of it all in this episode. Yes, we got in, we This episode has a vignette of life in the Top Chef house that is really hard to watch it's essentially all the chefs preparing dinner together the night in between the challenge and you see robin in the kitchen with michael voltaggio and eli and eli and michael voltaggio are really being nasty to robin to her face in a very immature way and i was very surprised to see that michael voltaggio was the one who kicked it off yeah i guess i don't know why I feel this way but I kind of figured he was sort of above this petty drama and just like wanted cooking to stand for itself yeah but he really like digs in on Robin and then that gives Eli permission to be incredibly nasty to yeah. her which watching that scene was so uncomfortable I for me. personally like I think where he was coming from uh, or like doesn't make any of it right but I think what he was motivated by was like actually the he feeling um, for his chef Tessens that got voted off that were stronger chefs. Like I think he takes the like, uh, like the seriousness of people's caliber very much to heart. And so to see that being sort of like blown up in his face, like I think he it like makes him angry on like the the like the institution. Yes. Or, you know, yeah. something like... I completely understand why he gets mad. It's just incredible to see that level yeah, of immaturity. Like, no. Yeah, it It's weird. like, come on, dude. Like, grow up. How, get it's some perspective. Re- and, like, she's, like, twice their age. That was it the other thing. It just feels like the, the power dynamic is very and weird. And it really is her against everyone. Yeah. I will say, though, that I really liked that she fought back. Yeah. She wasn't trying to gain their approval. She wasn't trying to say, like, oh, God, these people aren't my friends. I just want them to be my friends. She literally... Yeah. She says, I am not here to make friends. Hell yeah, Robin. Which... Good for you. And usually that line is reserved for the villain. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe in 2009, if we had watched, when we watched it back then, she was quote unquote yeah. the villain. But upon rewatch, like, she's just getting bullied she's every day. She's just like doing yoga, trying to like be healthy. She's and just trying like, to be on this competition yeah. show that they all got cast on. And she's playing by the same rules that they're playing by. So I just wanted to take a minute to acknowledge that incident. So silly. Let's get back to food. Let's talk about dishes that were great. Yep. So Michael Vantaggio, out the gate, first dish that they uh, ate, they say it was amazing. The truffle bun is unanimously uh, revered Mm -hmm. among both diners and judges alike. 
Um, I think his was like one of the only dishes that like kind of successfully incorporated color. Yes. Like it seemed more visually interesting. We had like a little bit of like a cherry sauce. Well, actually, yeah, the other person did incredibly well was Kevin. Yes. Kevin knocked it out of the park. And of course, he is the pork man. He did buy Whole Foods out of 100% of its bacon. He just said all of it. <laughs> a real Ron Swanson move if there's ever been one. But in the words of uh, Gimli, that still only counts as one on our baking counter. <laughs> I love it. Um, and then let's talk about the Battle of the Belly. Eli versus Jen. Oh, yeah. Eli was talking a big game this whole episode about all of these peons don't know about pairing. You know, I'm very sophisticated. Yeah. I've put a lot of time into this. And then while his dish wasn't bad, he lost the battle of the belly. Jen came out on top yep. with a delicious uh, belly braised in soy sauce with an herb salad. And it looked divine. Um, and so let's talk about judges table. So as we said, Jen came out on top. She was uh, joined on the top by... Kevin, Brian, and Michael. Mm-hmm. A very predictable top four. Or that we're seeing a lot of consistency here. Yep. And Kevin takes home the win. And then shows off his pork, or his pig tattoo. I love that like, Kevin kind of continues to win in all the moments that I want Kevin to win. Yes. Like, I want him to be the one that wins the pig challenge. I want him to be the one that wins the Cafalon, like, 15-piece set. I want him to win the meal with the French chefs where he doesn't say a word. Yes, I love it. I love him. He's very soft-spoken, and I think he just portrays a level of competence and excellence uh, in a less egotistical way than everyone else on the show, and I think that makes him a very likable character. Um, On the bottom, we have Ash, Lorene, and Robin, as we said. Um, Lorene, as it turns out, does not know how to make a riette. Uh, Charlie Palmer schooled her very quickly yeah. on how to make a riette, and you could just see her resort or retreat into her shell. That was yeah. tough to watch. We have Robin, who gave a very thin piece of meat, and then Ash, who gets very ridiculed <laughs> by the judges for just hitting every note incorrectly. Um, but also leads to a very fun moment of him going back to the stew room and exclaiming, I forgot flavor, <laughs> in a very sarcastic oh, way. I forgot flavor, of course. Of yeah. course. We see Ash, unfortunately, get eliminated. Yeah. It was his time. Yeah. I think that while it would make more sense for Robin to go before him, given her performance and past challenges, Eli was at the end of his road. Ash. Ash. Wishful thinking. (laughs) Ash Ash was at the end of his road. Yeah. He definitely, like, kind of willed that reality into existence with, like, episodes worth of doubt. Yes, Um, exactly. But, yeah. So, see you later, Ash. Um, Nancy, before we get into where he's at now, um, chilled pork tendiloin. Would you eat that? No. Yeah. I think the clammy word is, like, really all I needed to hear to be, like, no, thank you. Yeah. Um, not really interesting to me at all. Uh, pork is already something that I eat in moderation, and so that's not going to put me over the edge. So now let's get into where are they now. Ash, whose full name is Ashley Folk. So we had two Ashleys on this season. Ironically, it seems like Ashley Merriman. Shout out, Ashley Merriman. Shout out, shout out. We love you. Yes. She goes by Ash, and I think that Ash... I guess he goes by Ash as well, but his full name is Ashley, which I thought was very I interesting. I didn't know... I don't think I've ever met a man named Ashley. I think there was... I've met a Hillary. 
You've met a man named Hillary? Yeah, it's a very popular British name for men. That is cr- No way. Yes way. What? My dad worked at a British company for a long time and he had a is lot of- Is it spelled like H-I-L-A-R-Y? Yeah. Okay, that is actually even way more out there to me than Ashley. Um, yeah, and then- Kate's- Not not that it's out there. I just like genuinely have no frame of reference for- Hillary being a man's name. Yeah. Yeah, well, it is. It is. Okay, well, if Curtis your name is Hillary, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, if you're a fan and you're uh, male identifying and your name is Hillary, hit us up. We what do you to- think the odds are that that person exists? Like point zero <laughs> That Venn diagram <laughs> of people who listen to our <laughs> podcast? Well, I bet one of the 19,000 people who looked at our reel today- one of them might be a man named Hillary. That's true. I mean, actually, it was 21,000 people, oh, so... as of the time... The of odds are in our favor. Yeah. Okay, anyways, Sorry. to this Ashley. So, Ashley Folk has had kind of a cool career ever since Top Chef. Um, Love it. He uh, went back to his restaurant after the show, and then he sort of, I think, had a bit of a midlife crisis perhaps or just like a what do I want to do what type of food do I like to create right and he realized that he wanted to get back to his roots he's from one of the Carolinas I think and um he wanted to get back into smoking these meats love that and because he was famously like the New York chef on this season exactly that's very cool and so he said that he studied under a few pit masters um some very storied pit masters of the south and then he ended up working at Hill Country Barbecue, which wow. is a really high-end uh, barbecue concept. Yeah. Uh, there's one in New York. And now, as of late, he is the culinary director at Hill Country Barbecue. So I think that That's he... Awesome. Or sorry, Hill Country Hospitality. So I think that he's maybe no longer like in the kitchen day in, day out, but he is overseeing the culinary operations. So that's where he is in life. That's so interesting. And honestly, like, I obviously we only know him as much as we've seen him on the show, but that's just a very cool place for him to end up. It feels fitting. I think he just seems like a very kind of, like, easy, jovial, just, like, kind of quick guy. So, yeah, feels like a nice fit for him in the culinary uh, tapestry. Yeah. No, very happy for Ash slash Ashley. Say that ten times fast. Ash slash Ashley. <laughs> you just have to do it. Uh, okay, yeah, so that's where he is. Now we're going to do our favorite segment, Judgy Table, which we are rebranding from Judge's Table to Judgy Table to avoid confusion Very with Judge's Table when we talk about it in the episode. Yes. So, and Nancy, I should say today, I don't think I have anything for Judgy Table. Okay. I was going to kind of like lean in on the... Um, wine angels but i think we like really dove into that already. yeah we covered that ad nauseum let's let's hear from you okay so i have a short judgy table and uh so nancy your one minute judgy table starts now parsnip puree as a replacement for mashed potatoes (laughs) we've seen it a few times in this season yes we've seen brian voltaggio do it i believe twice we saw ash supposedly attempt to do it in his shepherd's pie parsnip puree might look like mashed potatoes but it does not taste like mashed potatoes and we need to as a society agree on this there is no worse feeling of being duped by a parsnip puree that you believe to be mashed potatoes it is confusing for the senses it is confusing for the palate and i want nothing to do with it i want mashed potatoes i want them creamy i want them buttery i want them salty and i don't need any tangy parsnip puree getting in the way no, thank you. And that is my judgy table today. 
I love it. Thank well, you so much. If you're a parsnip, stay away from us. Everybody else, we can't wait to see you next time on Compliments to the Chef. See ya. Bye. <laughs>